and this is it for this particular study that we've only scratched the surface, so to speak, in what we've been looking at. As we start tonight, this is week 21 last week, we're talking about several things tonight. What I want us to look at a big picture of what all we've seen in the last 20 weeks. To make sure we don't miss the, the forest for the trees, so to speak, to get the big picture of what we're looking at. But I also want to talk about tonight that ultimately our goal in this is knowing God. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing God. So we're going to talk about that tonight. As we begin tonight, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer I want us to look at to get us thinking. So on the front of page one of your handout, he says, If there is one terrible de- disease in the church of Christ, it is that we do not see God as great as he is. If there's one disease that afflicts the churches, it's we do not see God as great as he is. And I think he's onto that. It's so easy for us to lose sight of who God is and his greatness. And I hope over these 20 weeks our minds have been stretched to see a little bit more of the greatness of God. But I want to remind us that we've only scratched the surface. This is only, this isn't like we've arrived. We are just beginning. I hope the more you've seen, the more your minds can stretch, the more, like me, you realize there's so much more we need to know on that. I think about all we've seen this whole, these last 20 weeks. I found this quote from Augustine, one of the early church fathers. And we looked at part of this quote many weeks ago, but I thought it was a fitting one as we kind of start to wrap up our study. And he says this to describe God. You are most high, excellent, most powerful, omnipotent, supremely merciful and supremely just, most hidden, yet intimately present, infinitely beautiful and infinitely strong, steadfast, yet elusive, unchanging yourself, though you, can contr- though you control the change in all things, never new, never old, Renewing all things, yet wearing down the proud, though they know it not. Ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need. Supporting and filling and guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, seeking, although you lack nothing. You love without frenzy, you are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness, you grow angry yet remain tranquil. You alter your works, but never your plan. You you take back when you find, although you never lost it. You are never in need, yet you rejoice in your gains. You owe us nothing. Yet you pay your debts. You write off our debts to you, yet you lose nothing thereby. Make your mind hurt a little bit? That is who God is in this quick summary form of a lot of what we have looked at throughout this semester. That reminds me of how much I need to learn when I think about all those things that kind of stretch my mind there. With that said, my challenge for us tonight and the weeks to come is simply this Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Let us know, let us press on to know. The Lord, And that's my desire out of this study, is that it's leading us to press on to know the Lord. That we're not stopping here, but we're pressing on to know more of who God is. Now, if you want to, before we get into tonight's thing, I just want to remind you, if you want to go deeper in some of these things, again, we're scratched the surface in the study. Several things I want to commend to your reading. These are all available in the hallway out there. If you want to go deep, not only with attributes of God, systematic theology is the place to start. My favorite is Wayne Grudem's, and these are all listed on your handout. Again, they're in the hallway. If this one looks a little bit too intimidating because you can do curls in the gym with systematic, they have abridged it. Some of our college students are working there. It's called Bible Doctrine, Wayne Grudem. Same books, same topics, just a little bit more manageable. So those have a lot of the attributes of God. We've quoted Wayne Grudem a lot, and his definitions of attributes comes from those books. You want to go deeper in some other things? God is. It's a devotional book on the attributes of God. I didn't discover it until a few weeks ago. I wish I found it 20 weeks ago because it is rich in what it teaches about who God is. And it takes it more in a devotional short chapter approach so you can read on that. Just as far as richness of it, the attributes of God, A.W. Pink. Few authors hold up the, the majesty and greatness and sovereignty of God like A.W. Pink does. This book is a great summary of his attributes. Fairly easy to read format also. And then praying the attributes of God. All this is is a list of scriptures. Each attribute... They'll take the attribute, and they'll just list scriptures of it. No commentary, just scriptures with a prayer on that. And then finally, a lot of the theme for tonight, knowing God, J.I. Packer. A lot about the attributes of God 
but a lot about how these attributes are about knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing God. And so these are all available. Um, in fact, these four right here are all on the top center shelf. There's an attributes of God shelf in our resource center out there now. They're all available. If you want to go deeper in that, I just encourage you towards those books. It's all good reading that would really, I think, bless you and challenge you. So wrapping it all up tonight, looking at what we want to see, I want us to go back to the, the foundation of what we've talked about and then see what the attributes are before we think about how we know God. So first of all, what are the attributes of God? Well, let's go all the way back 20 weeks ago. God shows us who he is in Scripture with several things, with his names, with the images, you know, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. We've seen a lot of those images in John. And with his attributes. And so a fun study sometime might be to do a study on the names of God or a study on the images of how God describes himself throughout Scripture. And so God shows us himself in these several ways. We focus in on the attributes. There's sometimes calls his perfections, his properties, his virtues. We've chosen the word attributes on this. What are the attributes? Well, we started off 20 weeks ago with this quote from W.T. Connor, who was a professor at Southern Seminary in 1936. Best definition of attributes I've found. He said, The attributes of God are those qualities or characteristics of the divine being by virtue of which he is distinguished from all created beings and without which he would not be worthy of the worship and service of man. Just to remind us, all these things we've seen over these 20 weeks so far has been distinguishing God. It's making God God. It's what sets him apart from everything else. And it's what makes him worthy of worship. It's, his, it's who he is. Therefore, he's worthy of worship and our devotion to him. Wayne Greedham helps remind us as well. He says, each attribute is simply a way of describing one aspect of God's total character or being. God himself is a unity, a unified and completely integrated whole person who is infinitely perfect in all these attributes. Why then does Scripture speak of these different attributes of God? It's probably because we are unable to grasp all of God's character at one time. We need to learn of it from different perspectives over a period of time. Yeah, these perspectives should never be set in opposition to one another, for they are just different ways of looking at the totality of God's character. So just to remind us, God's attributes don't compete. One attribute is not more important than the other. God is fully all these attributes all of the time, but perhaps in God's kindness to us, to help us in our finiteness understand his infiniteness, he reveals himself to us and shows us these attributes so we can try to begin to see who he is. And I love the way Grudem describes us almost in the sense God has condescended to speak in a language we can understand so we can get a tiny glimpse of his greatness and who he is. In light of that, there are several things I want to remind us of because it's so important to everything we've talked about. Number one, God's attributes are revealed to us by God. We cannot know God except for him revealing himself to us, friends. We are dependent upon him. We're not discovering God because we're so smart. We haven't figured out these things because we have such great intellect. If we know these things, it's because God in his kindness has revealed them to us. He has opened our eyes to us. He's given us the scriptures and he's illuminated the scriptures so that we might know him. Matthew chapter 11 verse 27 reminds us, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so God has to reveal himself to us. And so, friends, when we begin to understand glimpses of these attributes of God, it should lead us to thankfulness, humility. Because we haven't discovered this because we're so amazingly smart and clever. But God in his kindness has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we might understand and know who he is in these different ways. The second thing there on the bottom of page two that I want to remind us of as we think about the attributes of God is, friends, we, we never will know everything that can be known about God. We never can know everything that could be known about God. I mean, after 21 weeks, we've barely scratched the surface. You could spend every day of your life studying the attributes of God, and when you get to heaven, there's going to be things you don't know about God you're still discovering. 
And then a million years from now, you're still going to be discovering new things about God. He's that vast, and there's no way in our finiteness we can understand all of who God is. We will never cease to be discovering new things about him. So many of the scriptures we could point to remind us of how vast he is. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Friends, there's no one to whom we can compare. And think about in the marriage relationship. Those of you in this room who have been married a long time, you probably are still discovering new things about your spouse after all these years. You, there wasn't a point you're like, great, I've been married eight years. I've discovered everything about Julia, nothing else to learn. I got it figured out. No, it's still a process of discovery. If in the human world we're still discovering new things about our spouse after those of you who have been married 20, 30, 40 years, how much more so with God and his infiniteness? That for millions of years from now, we will still be discovering new things about God and in awe of his greatness as we begin to see more and more of his glory. There on your page too, Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Friends, we spent 20 weeks trying to discover something that God has said is unsearchable. That is how tiny of a dent we made in understanding the attributes of God. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And we've measured 20 weeks on this. Tonight's 21. And yet his understanding is beyond measure. Turn to page 3. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Just pause there again. Let that image sink in. The depths. Think of the deepest thing you can think of. And so much deeper than that is God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is unsearchable. He's so vast and we're still trying to discover little glimpses of him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable life, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We've been trying to describe someone who we cannot see over these 20 weeks. And again, we've only scratched the surface of that. In light of that, I love several quotes to remind us of how big God is and how limited we are in this. A guy named Maximus the Confessor, he was a monk in the 600s. I haven't quoted him before. In fact, I didn't even know much of who he was until I came across this quote, and I was trying to figure out who he was. He says, whoever has seen God and has understood what he saw has seen nothing. Well, that's thinking, whoever has seen God and has understood what he saw, he has seen nothing. Friends, if we think that we have understood who God is, we have totally missed God in the process of this. The more we see of God, the more we realize that we simply do not know. This quote from John Calvin, the majesty of God is too high to be scaled up to by mortals who creep like worms on the earth. I love that image, friends. God is this mountaintop of vastness, and we're like a little tiny worm at the bottom of the mountain trying to get to the top of it. Our exploration of these 20 weeks of attributes of God is probably more than a lot of believers across America have studied, but that's equivalent of us as a worm at the base of the mountain looking at the mountain and we've crawled a few inches on the mountain and there are whole mountains in front of us. That is the God we are trying to understand and seek to know. Wayne Grudem reminds us for all eternity we will be able to go on increasing in our knowledge of God and delighting ourselves more and more in Him. Friends, like I said earlier, we will never cease to discover new things about God. For all eternity, heaven's not going to be some boring place we yawn after a few years strumming our hearts. No, we will be seeing the glory of God and we will never cease to discover new things about who God is. The old term that was used for this is not on your handout. People used to call this God is incomprehensible. 
but we kind of don't use that term as much because incomprehensible people understand today, well, we can't understand God. Well, we can understand glimpses. We can't understand fully, but it doesn't mean we, God's a total mystery to us, but it means we can begin to understand who he is, but we'll never reach the height of that mountain. So what have we seen so far throughout this study? First of all, we started with the incommunicable attributes. Who remembers? What are the incommunicable attributes? What does that mean? Anyone remember? Attributes of God that... Yeah, that he does not share with us, that are unique to God. These are the ones he does not communicate, he does not share with us. These are unique to God, separates him from us. We saw a number of these. Let's just look at these. I just want to remind us what all we've seen about God. Again, we're the worm at the base of the mountain, friends, and we're glancing up at the mountain here just to see what we've looked at for the last 20 weeks. The unity of God. God is not divided into parts. Every attribute of God is completely true of all of God's character all the time. God is not like... One day wrathful, one day merciful. Again, think about how hopeful that is for us. If God changes and we don't know what attribute of God is going to be prevalent that day, it could be a scary thing. God has these attributes all the time. He, they do not fight. God's independence. Wayne Greenham says, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. God doesn't need us. That's a foundation for us. We're not studying these things because God needs something from us. We're studying this because we need him. We need to know who he is. That's eternality. God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. He sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees and acts in time. I don't know about you, that one hurts my mind more than just about anything else. That God is outside of time. That there was a time when there was no time that God existed. So God is totally outside of time. He doesn't have a succession of moments in his being like we do. God's spirituality. God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily sense, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. So we had a whole week talking about the fact that God doesn't have matter. He's a spirit. God's omnipresence. This means he's omni-all-presence everywhere, all-presence. God is not confined to space any more than he is measured by time. He is present everywhere. He's present at one and the same time everywhere. There's nowhere we can escape God's presence. Or God's unchangingness, and as we call this, he's immutable. And this is one of my favorite definitions I think we saw throughout the whole study. A.W. Pink. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes or determination. Therefore, God is compared to a rock, which remains immovable, when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state. Because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. You think of the scene of an ocean with the waves crashing, everything in motion around it, and you have that one rock sitting there, unable to be moved by the ocean around it. That's just a tiny glimpse of who God is. Again, with that little worm trying to climb the mountain, understanding who God is. <coughs> Excuse me. Turn the page. Communicable attributes of God. These are attributes of God that he shares with us, keyword in part. We only have tiny aspects of this, but these are parts that he shares with us in part. What we saw, communicable attributes of God, he's omniscient, omni, all science, knowledge, all knowledge, all knowing. God fully knows himself in all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Again, this one makes my mind hurt, friends. Because God knows all possibilities. He knows what happened. He knows what will happen. If you remember from our discussion of that middle knowledge, God knows every possibility of everything that could be different in the world and every decision was different of all people and doesn't make his mind hurt. I have a hard time remembering what happened a few weeks ago and God knows every possibility that could have happened over the entire creation and everything that will happen to that and he knows how everything could work together. He knows every possibility. God's wisdom. Wisdom in God is infinite and unerring, choosing always the best end and the best means of attaining it. It's seen in creation and in providence, but is most significantly manifest in redemption. God is wise in all he does. God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness means that he is a true God, and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. God is omnipotent, omni-all, potent power. 
The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. You think about the importance of having all the attributes of God. If you have a God who has all wisdom but doesn't have power, how helpless that would be. Or if you have a God who is all-powerful but is not good, how terrifying that would be. God is always all these attributes. God is good. God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. God is holy. The sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. And that's why I recommend that A.W. Pink book to you. He gave us that quote of God is like the rock in the ocean. Here it is. He is not sullied even by the shadow of sin. He's so perfect, not even a shadow of sin can touch his perfection. Love. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. God's righteousness and justice. God's righteousness and justice refer to God's holy and perfect character and the holy and perfect works that flow from his character. His righteousness and justice mean that all he says and does is right. It also means that his truth will certainly prevail and that every wrong will one day be punished. And salvation certainly will come to his people. God's mercy is God forgiving sin and God showing compassion to those who are suffering. God's jealousy. God's jealousy is not the sinful emotion of envy that characterizes human jealousy. It is God's righteous concern to protect the truth that he is the creator of the universe and that he alone, not gods of human invention, deserves human praise. Those who worship idols provoke God's jealousy and receive his wrath as Israel had experienced in the wilderness. Then we turn to God's grace. I'm quoting Greg Teal here on this, and this was good when he taught that night, so you got quoted alongside Wayne Greedham here, Greg. God's attribute of always being disposed to and leaning towards blessing and kindness, not because it is deserved or earned, but because it is God just being God. Friends, that is a great definition of grace right there, that God is leaning towards, get that image, leaning towards blessing and kindness, not because we're worthy of it, but because he is God and he's chosen to do that. God's wrath, this is the one that Greg or Dave did not pick to teach and left me to teach this one. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. So this is God's action against sin. And what we saw last week from this new book I was recommending to you a minute ago, God Is, from Mark Jones, Glory and Majesty. There are basically two ways that we can speak of God's glory, a term that denotes his divine splendor and the magnificence for which he is worthy of honor. First, God's essential glory represents the sum of his attributes, which rather make him the God of glory. Second, there is a glory ascribed to God in terms of what his creatures bring to him. The latter glory has in view our praise, worship, obedience, and delight. So we keep the name of the Lord holy in all that we do. Friends, that's a whirlwind of what we've seen over the last 20 weeks of this study. Again, that is the mountain we are looking upon. It's little worms at the bottom looking up on the vastness of that and so much more trying to understand who God is. So turn to page 5. I want to, there's a quote here at the top of the page from J.I. Packer that is an important question. He says, we need to ask ourselves, what is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do in my knowledge about God once I have it? That's an important question for us. You guys have been faithful for 20 weeks to be wrestling with who God is. What are we trying to do with this knowledge? What is the end? What is the outcome? What are we trying to gain from this? Well, as you see in bold letters there, there's a big difference in knowing about someone and knowing someone. Friends, I hope and pray that the desire we have in understanding these things is not to know about God but it's to 
know God. Again, there's a big difference in knowing about and knowing. You know, I can know facts about our president, but I don't know our president. I can know facts about the Auburn football team. I can know who the coaches are and who the quarterbacks are and who the players are and their stats and all those things. But if I see one in public, I don't know who they are. I don't know them. They don't know me. But I can tell you facts about Julia, but I know her. I just don't know about her. I know her. Now, I want you to realize that as we're thinking about the attributes of God, we must guard our hearts and seek God's grace, just not to know information about God, but to know God himself for who he is. J.I. Packer gives us a, kind of a sobering warning here again. This comes from his book, Knowing God, I was mentioning earlier. He says, not many of us, I think, would ever naturally say that we have known God. The words imply a definiteness and a matter-of-factness of experience which, to which most of us, if we are honest, have to admit that we are still strangers. We claim perhaps to have a testimony, and we can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them. We say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are expected to say. But would it occur to us to say, without hesitation, and with reference to particular events in our personal history, that we have known God? I doubt it. For I suspect that mo- with most of us... Ex- ex- excuse me. I doubt it, for I suspect that with most of us, experience of God has never become so vivid as that. And friends, I think that's true in a lot of us. There's so much that we know about God, but do we know God on this intimate, very personal level? And my prayer out of these 20 weeks now is that it stirs our heart to not just want to know about God, but to know God himself. So you see there in here now, friends, we must seek to know God. It's God's will for us. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9 there on your handout. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What brings God delight? Being God and us knowing him. Friends, God takes delight when we know him, when we know him in a personal way. We've looked at scriptures all throughout the study of God rejoicing over us with singing. God delights in knowing us. Or John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, this is what God saved us for, made us for, to know him. Not to know about him, just but to know about him so that we know him in this. Scrutum says, it is God himself and his whole being who is supremely important. And it is God himself and his whole being who we are to seek to know and to love. Friends, we want to know God in his whole being. That's why we look at all the attributes. That's why we don't just choose love and not wrath. So we don't just choose grace and not jealousy. God has revealed himself in all these attributes. And if we want to know him, we must know him not as a God of our imagination who does what we want him to do. We must know him for him. So therefore, we look at all these attributes. Again, J.I. Packer says, Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and our helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given, and it's to this use that we must put it. Friends, again, we're not studying attributes for the sake of knowing about God. We're studying these things so that we might know God. So how do we grow in knowing God? How do, what, is, what steps can we take coming off of these 20, 20 weeks now to grow in how we know God? Well, I've uh, got several things for us. Number one, we've got to begin by thinking correctly about ourselves. We have to think correctly about ourselves. In Romans chapter 12 here, we're told, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, watch this, this phrase here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So how do we grow in, in knowing God? Well, friends, we have a right view of ourselves. Look at what it's put here on page 6. Thinking about the attributes of God will help us think correctly about ourselves. Again, if we really dive deep in the study of who God is, we come to that conclusion from that quote earlier, we're like a worm at the base of a mountain looking at the mountain. Because he's so big. And it humbles us when we realize how big he is. In our hearts, in our pride, in our culture, we kind of elevate self so much and self, and we kind of bring God down to our level. But if we look at God for the, in all of his totality of his attributes, we see his greatness, we see all these things about him, and we realize how vast he is and how small we are. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, once said. He said, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Friends, that's one of my prayers for me and for all of us in this study. And as we keep thinking about this, these topics in the years to come, as we keep thinking about who God is, is that it'll humble our mind while at the same time expanding it. Because the more we see, get our mind expanded of how vast God is, the more we see his greatness, the more it helps us put, puts us in our correct place as well. And so I pray that as you continue to think about God, even with this study coming to an end, the more you look at God's word and study who God is, I pray that will be your heart's cry. Is God, I want to see you. So I might be humbleness, but my, my mind might be stretched to know more of who you are. What else can we do to grow in our knowledge of God? Second, we can meditate on the attributes of God as he's revealed in Scripture. Again, J.I. Packer, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple, but demanding. is that we turn each truth we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading us to prayer and praise to God. Well, what I mean by this, when we, when we think of meditation, we picture someone sitting on the floor humming, trying to empty their mind so often. That's not what Christian meditation is all about. When you hear people like John, John Piper or J.I. Packer talking about meditation, they're not talking about sitting on the floor humming, emptying your mind here. Christian meditation, rather, is filling our minds with the truth of God. It's focusing in, honing in on something that we want to go deep with. Donald Whitney, his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which is also out in the hallway, says this, Christian meditation involves filling your mind with God and His truth. Biblical meditation requires constructive mental activity. Let's define meditation as deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective <coughs> for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. Friends, if we want to grow in our knowledge of God, I'd encourage you to take any of the Scriptures we've looked at for these 20 weeks and don't just read them once and put it on the shelf. Take the hand out, pick a Scripture, read it. Read it again, read it again, pray over it, write it down, think about it, pray it back to the Lord, meditate. That's what I mean by meditating on it. We don't just read it and move on. I have my quiet time check. It's I read it and I keep reading it. I keep thinking about it. I start crying out, Lord, what does this say? To, what, what do you mean here? What's going on here? How does this change my life? And we think and we think. You write on note cards. You put it up in your house. You put it on the dashboard of your car. You, you meditate. You, you fill your mind with the truth of God's word. And for instance, if we do that, our minds will continue to get expanded. Perhaps verses you've looked at for 20 years of your life, if you meditate on them with a prayer, Lord, show me your glory in this. I think you're going to find as you meditate on these scriptures, your mind gets stretched. <coughs> Number three here, think about how God is both infinite and personal. Friend, this is one of the unique things about the Christian faith. There's no other religion where you have a God who's infinitely powerful and personal at the same time. It's really unique in what God has done as we see the true God. It takes time to think about all of his attributes, not just the ones to which you are most drawn. And we talked about this as we looked at the unity of God. There are attributes that we are most drawn to. 
And if you look at, like I referenced Sunday morning in our sermon from John, we're draw, if you look at Christian books, Christian TV, Christian music, there's certain attributes that people are drawn to. God's love, God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy, and that's all part of God's attributes. But we typically don't find a lot of songs on Christian radio about the jealousy and the wrath of God, or even the holiness of God. We get drawn to certain attributes. And friends, if we want to really know God, we must know the totality of who he is. So think about both. Think about his infiniteness, but also think about his personalness as well. Look at what Wayne Greedham says. God is both infinite and personal. He is infinite in that he is not subject to any of the limitations of humanity or of creation in general. He is far greater than everything he has made, far greater than anything else that exists. But he's also personal. He interacts with us as a person. We can relate to him as persons. We can pray to him, worship him, obey him, and love him. He can speak to us, rejoice in us, and love us. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal. And I just encourage you, friends, as you read God's word devotionally, as you think about the word of God, make sure you're taking time to dwell on both. Think about his infiniteness, and yet think about how personal he is as well. That's why I recommend going through books of the Bible, like we're doing on John, because you're going to see both. Again, if we pick a devotional book that's just one verse, who knows, you're going to get whatever attributes the guy's drawn to who wrote the book. But if you look through a book of the Bible, you start seeing all of who God is. Again, not wrong to use those devotional books, but make sure you're getting the totality of who God is, how he's infinite and personal, both. We need to see all of him. And then number four, worship God for his attributes. You we have a right view of ourselves. We go to God. We look at his, all of his attributes in the word. We let it stretch us. We let it change us. We meditate about him. We think about who God is. And then in response, friends, we worship God. We don't stop with going, wow, that's really cool that God is holy and just. I'm going to work now. We need to worship God in response to thinking about his attributes. Look at what the psalmist does with this. And even notice here <coughs> that this is both <coughs> his infiniteness and his personalness, both. Psalm 95, verses 3 through 7. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Friends, that is both the infiniteness of God. He is above the mountains. He has made the sea. He's all these things, but yet he's our maker. He's our God. We're his people. We're his sheep. And what does the psalmist do? He worships God. You can just almost hear him not be able to contain himself. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Friends, I pray that as you get in the word each day, as you think about the attributes of God, this is what I pray happens in all of our hearts. That we see who God is and we respond with worship. We can't contain ourselves because when we see God for his vastness, his majesty, how can we do anything but to worship him in response? Well, in light of that, come to page seven here. How can we really know if we really know God? Oh, sorry, go back to, I skipped something, bottom page six. Two things I want to mention here. This is important. No, I almost passed over those. Be concerned if you consider the attributes of God and are unmoved. Friends, there's two warnings here, two dangerous forces. If we think about the holiness, the justice, the mercy and grace of God, and our hearts don't feel something in them, we need to be crying out for God's grace to be drawing us close because we should not be able to think about these things and our hearts not be changed or moved. When we're in the presence of God, it changes us. We feel we should feel something because of that. But also, friends, be concerned if you're feeling moved and you're not seeing God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. Sometimes people, I think, equate emotional experiences with really knowing God. And there's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to experience him. God wants us to know him. But, friends, there's two dangers. Either we think about all these attributes and we know about God, but we're not moved because we don't know him personally. 
or we feel all this movement and emotion, excitement in worship, but yet we're not really seeing him for who he is. We need to make sure we're feeling a response to who he really is. Now turn to page seven. So how can we really know, how can we know if we really know God? Well, friends, if we really know God, our lives will change. We cannot be in his presence and remain unmoved and unchanged. Someone told me years ago, they said, Grady, the true test of worship for you, because I, I think I, was, I come out of a, a, a great worship service, and I was man, that was so great. That was an incredible worship service. Really, God was here today. And a friend looked at me and said, Grady, the true test of worship was not how high people lifted their hands, not how excited they got, not how loud they sang, it's how holy they're going to be on Friday and Saturday of next week. That just kind of stood out to me, because if we really are in the presence of God, yes, there's emotional feelings. God made us emotional beings, we'll feel it, but it'll do something to us. It'll change us when we're in the presence of the great I am, our creator, who is above all. When we're in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords, how can we be there and not be moved and not have something change in our lives? J.I. Packer, again, in Knowing God, suggests there's four evidences that we really know God. I'm not saying this is a definitive list. These are his four suggestions based on his experience. So people who know God, four things happen. One, those who know God have great energy for God. They find strength to do what God's called them to do. Number two, those who know God have great thoughts of God. They find themselves thinking about who God is and his attributes and his greatness and his names and all those things. Number three, those who know God show great boldness for God. They find strength from him, empowered by the Holy Spirit to go do things for him, ministry, loving others, serving others, whatever. Number four, those who know God have great contentment in God. When we really know God, if we have a personal relationship with the Creator, not just knowing about him, but knowing him, how can there be anything this world has to offer to draw us? If we really know him, for him. And so, friends, as we come to the end of this study of these 21 weeks, and bold there on page 7, we must ask ourselves if studying God's attributes changes us. Because I have to ask the question, we need to ask ourselves this question, has anything changed in our life because we've been going deeper in knowing about God? Has it led us to not just knowing about him, but to knowing him? Because I've learned more about God, do I now love God more than I did several months ago? Because I know more of who God is, do I find myself more in awe of Him? Do I find myself more moved in His presence? Do I find myself striving and asking for more grace for holiness because I better understand His jealousy and His wrath and His justice? And I long to be in His presence. I know how I view sin. So do I find myself hating sin in my heart more because of studying Him? Do I find myself more eager to serve, knowing how great He is and what He's called me to do? Do I find myself more content in not being drawn to things in this world? Friends, is my life different because of this? Is your life different? Because of this, we haven't arrived on that, but hopefully something has changed in our hearts and our thinking because we've been meditating on the bigness of God. My prayer is that, again, this is just the beginning for us. We're not done with actually God. I hope as we keep studying through John on Sunday mornings with whatever Bible studies you're doing, that you start seeing the attributes of God everywhere you turn, all throughout the scriptures, and you find yourself going, wow, there's, there's God's unchangeableness. There's God's love. There's God's justice. There's God's jealousy. And I want us to start seeing the attributes of God everywhere we look, and as we do so, that it might change us. So as we come to the end of our study, I thought it was fitting. I found this old hymn. Some of you know it. It's not my favorite tune in the world, but it's some of my favorite lyrics in the world on this. So we need to actually we need to find someone who can put this to contemporary music and, and make this sound a little bit more singable for our generation here today. But just look at this. We're going to talk about this, <coughs> this particular hymn in your groups tonight. But if we think about the attributes of God, listen to the words. I'm not going to, I'll spare you me singing it. I'm going to read it to us. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. This was written in 1867 by a pastor in England named Walter Smith. And here's what he wrote. And you just be thinking about what attributes of God are in this one hymn. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. 
and light inaccessible hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent is light, not wanting nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small, and all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but naught changeth thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we to render, O oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. There's a lot in there. Almost everything we talked about for the last few weeks is right there. I thought that's a fitting way for us to wrap up this study. So we'll turn to page 8. <coughs> Excuse me. For our last discussion, groups, on this particular study of the attributes of God, here's what I want us to think about tonight. I want us to reread that hymn on page 7 in your group. So once you break up, I want you to reread it. If you have a singer in your group, you're welcome to push them to sing it for you in the group, and I'll enjoy hearing that from a distance here. But think of, reread it at least, and think about what attributes of God do you find in it. You can think through the list of all we talked about, and what are the attributes of God that you see in this one particular hymn. Second of all, Wayne Grudem said this. He said, God is a subject of study that we will never master. And I've been alluding to that, but I think he says it more succinctly there. God is a subject of study that we will never master. Friends, does that truth encourage you or discourage you? To realize that if you spend the next 10 years of your life, 10 hours a day, doing nothing but studying the attributes of God, you would still have only begun to scratch the surface. You might have made it a few inches up that massive mountain after that time. Does that truth of that discourage you or encourage you? Why? Number three, how can we be sure? And I think we asked this question early in the, early in the study, so I want to bring it back here then. How can we be sure when we get to heaven, God won't tell us that everything we learned about him was wrong? So how do we know when we get to heaven, after thinking about all these things, we get there and God's like, man, y'all really missed it. But... How do we know that, that these things are true about him? Number four, we looked at that quote earlier on that sometimes our concept of God is too small. Do you agree that our concept of God often is too small? And if so, why is that so? And then how can we grow in our understanding of God? What are some practical things we can do as a community of faith to help each other grow in our understanding of God? Think not just individually, think in terms of community here. How do we help each other grow in our understanding of God? And then I'd love to hear from you guys in your groups, which attribute of God most stretched you? Think through all the different things we've talked about. And is there a particular attribute that you struggle with, but you understand it better now? Is there an attribute that you really have grown to love deeper? Which, which attributes have most impacted you as we've been thinking about them over the last 20 weeks? And not necessarily for your groups, but I want you to think about this question this week on your own. And I'd encourage you to talk to your spouse, talk to some friends about this week. Would you call your present relationship to God a personal relationship? Would you call your present relationship to God a personal relationship? I'm not ask if you check off the box you had your quiet time your prayer time in the mornings but do you know god not do you know about god but do you know god would you call your present relationship to god a personal relationship why or why not and what would make it more personal i would just really encourage you thinking about all we preached on in community back in september and october if you find that you need to grow in it being personal don't do that on your own god made us to be a people together and so go talk to your spouse go talk to one of the deacons or elders or your sunday school teacher or just a friend and say hey you know, my relationship with God is more knowledge. It's not very personal. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? And getting together with other people, and let's seek to encourage one another to know God on a deeper, more personal level. So we want to divide up into groups tonight to, to discuss these things. So we'll get Dave with a group over on this side.